Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn. And in this episode, I'm talking to Icy Sedgwick about folklore, which you will find wherever you travel in the world. Folklore encompasses legends, fairy tales and myths, physical objects and practices to protect and ward away evil, spirits and supernatural entities associated with particular places, and so much more. You might not even know that you practice elements of folklore. But did you ever leave a tooth out for the tooth fairy? Or wonder at the carvings of the green man here in the UK? Or go trick-or-treating at Halloween? If you approach your local customs and stories with an open and curious mind, you might just discover a lot of folklore hiding in plain sight. Icy talks about different aspects of folklore and how it resonates with particular places, as well as how it's handed down in a community and gives some examples of specifically English folklore stories and practices. I hope you enjoy the interview and that it gives you a starting point for discovering folklore in your local area and on your travels. Icy Cedric is the author of Dark Fantasy, Gothic Horror and Supernatural Mysteries. She's also a blogger and host of the Fabulous Folklore podcast. So welcome, Icy. Oh, thank you very much for having us. I'm very excited to talk to you. We're, we're both into dark things, but let's start with a definition. What is folklore and why does it resonate with a sense of place? Folklore is a really strange term because there's almost as many definitions for it as there are people who try to define it. And I think the way I tend to come at it is it's essentially like an accumulated body of knowledge that belongs to the people rather than academia. So rather than it being kind of dispensed from on high, it's sort of maintained by the people who are actually practicing it on a regular basis. And I think in a lot of ways it covers things like beliefs and sayings and rituals and also like elements of play in a lot of senses a lot of it looks like a way that gives people a sense of control over their environment in quite unpredictable times so there's quite a lot of folklore around stuff that you don't necessarily have a huge amount of control over one way or another and I think in terms of place it's really interesting because when I started doing the podcast in like 2019 it was it was fascinating to see how some of the stories are completely context specific and they're kind of related to like a landscape feature or they explain why something looks the way that it does or uh, where a natural feature may have come from. Mm. And you get quite a lot of stories like this in Scotland with the Caelic and the idea of this sort of giant kind of winter queen as she is, like literally hammering mountains out with a hammer. But then you also have a lot of stories where you're like hang on those stories are really similar but they're from a really wide range of places and maybe only the names are different and I think that says quite a lot for me anyway about how people relate to place in quite a shared way 
and obviously you can go into all the stuff around archetypes and the collective unconscious and stuff but I think it is just the fact that people relate to stuff in a more similar way than I think would would perhaps give humans credit for. Now, I love that you say it's a sort of the body of knowledge from people not academia and I guess that uh there's a, a kind of a trust. Trust is the wrong word, but women, for example, have been it's keepers of folklore and herbal remedies and things that have not been trusted and, in fact, have been persecuted by the authorities, including academia, I guess. Do you see that this is sort of, I guess, an underdog practice in a way? I think so, because, I mean, all you have to do is have a look at any tweet in the Folklore Thursday hashtag where someone's shared a bit of folklore with that particular tag and someone's gone, oh, this is ridiculous. How can people believe this superstitious nonsense? So I think it does get really easily dismissed as a childish belief or whatever. And I think because of the fact that also a lot of folklore wouldn't have been written down. So there's this kind of element of, oh, we don't have it in this ancient manuscript, therefore it must be nonsense which is mad when you consider sort of like the Anglo-Saxon medical texts that we do have that the British Library hold, sort of like the leech books and stuff, where they're like a combination of medical remedies and then how to ward off witches and demons and so on, all in the same book. So you think, really, everyone's consideration and preoccupation was kind of similar. But (laughs) for some reason, everyone sort of sat there and gone, oh, no, we're only going to look at the stuff that's written down. And I think it is something that you have to bear in mind when you look at a lot of the Victorian collectors because they kind of filtered what folklore they collected based on their own biases. So that's where in some ways it's really good to look at like genuine local folklore that is still being practised because you then think that's got a slightly longer uh, lineage, as it were, rather than just someone said, oh, by the way, people in Shropshire believed X and it may not actually be the case and that someone's just projected their own stuff onto that. Yeah, so why do you, I think both you and I are interested in this area and we write about it in our fiction and you obviously, you do non-fiction and you're studying this uh, professionally and you have the podcast and everything. And do you think there's a resurgence in interest in folklore and the supernatural in this increasingly digital and secular time? I guess secular, but also religious. There's a lot of religious fundamentalism, but also this sort of secular push. I think so. And what's really interesting is I actually um, just like there was one day I was bored the other day and I thought, why do people like folklore? I know I'll ask Twitter what could go wrong. And loads of people answered. And I got some really, really awesome answers about what got people into folklore in the first place. And there were quite a lot of people saying I'd always been interested in it. I just didn't realize it had a name. And it was just like they were just reading books of mythology or their parents would pass on local legends and they there were little traditions and um, sayings and, and whatnot that they had within the family that got passed down. And people didn't realise that their continuing to practice them was them actually engaging with folklore. And I think if you add that with the connectivity that you get with the internet, it actually makes it easier to then continue to share folklore and... I guess in a way, it's like when you consider how a lot of us do spend a lot of time online, particularly thanks to the pandemic, I think people have been looking for a sense of community that may be more difficult to access in reality. And obviously the internet is often somewhere that people turn. So I think it's quite interesting that because you've now got these vast like repositories of knowledge in the form of like blogs and podcasts and also like online books and things like the Welcome Collection, the British Library putting materials online, 
it's easier for people to actually go oh yeah I am interested in that thing I want to go and learn more about it and then they go and tell people what they've learned and then thus perpetuate it even further so like folklore is almost like this like viral thing I think where it kind of it it keeps getting passed on to other people just simply through people having an interest um mm. which is really funny and I, I do think it in, in terms of the secular time I think one thing I have noticed a, a dovetailing of particularly on Twitter is the crossover point between folklorists and a lot of people in the new age community because they come at this from a very different perspective but they might come into this through like modern paganism and so on and then start exploring uh, what is essentially their heritage as well so I think that it's quite nice that it offers something for both like armchair anthropologists and practitioners alike and I think that that's one of the flexible things about it really. And of course, because we both write fiction in fantasy, so much comes from folklore. I mean, people might not know that a werewolf urban fantasy novel, you know, with a werewolf detective or something does come from folklore and werewolves, of course, in lots of different uh, traditions around the world. But I feel, as you say, there's so many entry points into it, but maybe the word encompasses so much. (laughs) It's difficult. But yeah, I love that. So we should point out you have a great accent that some people might not recognise, which is from Newcastle in the northeast of England. So I wonder, tell us a bit about that area and any interesting folklore that are specific to where you live. Well, it's funny because obviously where I am, it's kind of technically speaking, I'm from north of the wall, which never stops fascinating me or being funny. And the Game of Thrones references are endless. But the, <laughs> um, the the funny thing is, this part of the country, like between sort of pretty much where I am, like north to the border, has been such a contested land for so long. I mean, sometimes it's obviously been part of Scotland, other times it's been part of England. We've had things like border reavers, we've had battles, you know, we've had all this sort of stuff going on, like Newcastle supported the Royalists in the English Civil War and nobody else around us did. So you've got a lot of... Um, bloodshed and violence in this area Mm. but then you team that with a lot of like heavy industry and and, and more traditional sort of things like shipbuilding and and coal mining and so on so we've got like a bit of a weird dual heritage thing going on there and I think what's really really interesting is we've actually got in Northumberland itself when you look at sort of the the folklore available there's a lot of fairy stories and I don't mean fairies in the Tinkerbell sense. Um, <laughs> you know, these, these are fairies you would no not want. No cute fairies. <laughs> so we've got things like fairy midwives. We've got shapeshifting fairies that will, you know, let you, if you're a traveller alone on a moor, let you think that they're a horse and then just randomly throw you off into the mud. And some of them are like proper practical jokers and you go, I bet that would be annoying, but at least you'd live to tell the tale. But then we've even got things like fairy funerals up at Brinkburn Priory, and they're really unusual. You don't really come across them in the record very often. And you talked about werewolves just before that. We even have an Anik vampire. And people always go, ooh, vampires, Bram Stoker. And this story dates to 1196. And (laughs) so we're kind of like trailblazers um, in, in that as well. And there was a monk called William of Newborough wrote about it. So it lends the account a little bit of legitimacy even if it's about what sounds like a vampire. And essentially there was this belief that there was this foul creature roaming the streets and it essentially preceded a plague outbreak. So people decided that this creature that was going around attacking people must be the cause of the plague. So obviously Northerners being Northerners, 
two of the local men decided they were going to dispatch it, you know, as you do. Mm. And they managed to trace it to its grave that it was crawling out of every night. They dug it up. It was far nearer the surface than they were expecting. And by all accounts, it was really bloated and just looked awful and was like looked like something that was full of blood. So they did what anyone would do and they attacked it with a spade. Um, and, uh, and I love this bit. They removed the heart and burned the body. So, you know, obviously kind of predates a lot of the, the stuff we're seeing horror cinema now. And apparently the plague outbreak ended soon after. So it's quite interesting how you that's like a really, really regional specific story that you don't really find that many vampire stories around the country. But like we've got this quite heavy metal version from the 12th century. And I quite like the fact that we, we do tend to have quite a lot of violent stories associated with this part of the country. <laughs> it is and you're right I mean there's uh, if people have seen is it The Last Kingdom which mm. is on Netflix now which is that area isn't it um, yeah. and the Vikings and the um, who, who else is it who, who's <laughs> terrible I should know <laughs> I think everyone's fought over this bit of country at some point or other and obviously I mean the Romans couldn't conquer it so it's uh, it, it's quite a hotbed of you know feistiness really yeah well that's awesome well you mentioned the shipbuilding there sort of more folklore stories around the sea because that coast is pretty wild too isn't it yeah I mean we've got some related with St Cuthbert who obviously lived on in a farm for a while among the Farn Islands and I mean they're worth a visit anyway just because you get to see puffins up close and puffins are probably the cutest seabird and we tend to have a lot of things mostly about actually smugglers caves along the coastline so it's less about the sea itself and it's more about obviously places that you should avoid because of who's using them there's a one in color coats and i remember going there as a child on a school trip and we were told under no circumstances do not go in this cave clearly if you're going to tell a class of primary school children not to do something that's precisely the thing that they're going to do and we went in this smugglers cave and it's really not that impressive but it was quite funny to sort of look back on it as an adult and think, oh, wow, that actually, that piece of tradition would have actually been for a reason because you wouldn't want to disturb anyone who was there. So there's legends that it was haunted or it was frequented by fairies and so on to try and keep people away. But obviously the further north you go, once you start hitting Scotland, obviously then you get into the realm of legends of Selkies and so on. So the the more I think about it, the more it's kind of things like witches raising storms because obviously... The witches at North Berwick allegedly did that to prevent James VI coming back from Denmark. And then I think they did that by throwing a dead cat into the sea. Oh. So get, yeah, as you do. And there's various charms and things that were like, record. I found them recorded in the newspaper that you could apparently do to raise a storm if you wanted to. And helpfully, it also explained how to put the storm down again as well, because you obviously wouldn't want to call one and then not know what to do with it. I love that. That's so awesome. Now, you mentioned the killing of the vampire stopped the plague. And of course, we live in plague times. We're recording this still, still in the pandemic. <laughs> and um, it almost feels to me like the some of these ancient folklore ideas have been repurposed into conspiracy theories on Twitter. So what are some of the other sort of plague related folklore? Well, it's funny because when you look at some of the, the theories about where covid came from you do kind of sit there and go you do realize that you're just contributing to this ancient tradition of blaming weird stuff for things that you don't understand so i mean in the back in the day people blamed obviously bad air because there was this idea that plague was caused by um bad air which hence the plague mask for the plague doctors 
they used to blame the god Apollo for bringing it because as well as being god of sort of um, music and the arts and so on, he was also the god of plague. There's a really interesting figure in Norwegian folklore called Pesta, and she was an old woman and she would carry either a rake or a broom. And if people spotted her with a rake, it meant some people would be spared because they would pass through the, the teeth of the rake. But if she was carrying the broom, the outbreak was going to be fatal for everyone. So you've got this idea of these almost supernatural reasons, or obviously in the case of Bad Edge, just something that didn't quite understand being what it was that possibly caused it. Mm. But then it's like some of the things people did to like ward it off are also kind of weird because people would buy like medical amulets to try and ward off the plague. And of course, you can imagine the snake oil that was available because obviously if people didn't really know, like if say it had writing involved, if you weren't literate, you would just trust that the piece of paper you'd been given as a charm didn't just simply say this is a piece of paper. <laughs> and there's a story about that, about that where somebody was given this medical cure and it literally just said like the best cure is beef broth or something along those lines. The the knights used to carry wormwood to try and stave off plague. I mean, wormwood will do quite a lot of things, but I'm not sure how um, useful it is against the plague. Or people would burn things like juniper leaves to sort of keep them smouldering as a defence against plague. And sometimes you can kind of understand where the it, came, it comes from because you go, well, yeah, fumigating things is a good idea, you know, and so on. But then you get my favourite thing of all, which is four thieves vinegar. And this is what thieves used to basically douse themselves with so that they'd be immune to plague. And then Mm. they would either rob graves or they would go into the houses of those afflicted by plague and rob them. And they would basically put like a mixture of wormwood, sage, rosemary and clove in either wine or cider vinegar. And then that was supposed to prevent them from getting plague. Uh, Whether it worked or not, I'm not sure. Somebody must have survived in order to pass on the recipe. So maybe it does. I don't know. Well, that's interesting. And isn't wormwood is in absinthe? Is that right? It used to be. I think they basically had to take it out because it's quite toxic if you take it in. I mean, that's why it could give uh, absinthe like the hallucinogenic properties. So who knows what they were seeing when they were using this? Well, exactly. And then, of course, <laughs> juniper goes in gin. So, yeah. I mean, basically, I think drinking and pandemics go together quite well. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of alcohol involved in quite a lot of the... Uh, quite a lot of these yeah. things. It really helps. I mean, it helps lots of things. But um, I, I do find that fascinating. And, I mean, of course, there is so much folklore in England. I mean, obviously, you mentioned, you've mentioned Scotland as well. But, uh, there are so many places we could talk about. But is there anything that you particularly love that you would recommend in terms of places or particular folklore I think basically like anywhere in England is gonna have some really interesting stories and I think one thing I would say to people is don't assume just because you're in a city that there's not going to be interest in folklore because in some cases because you've got a greater concentration of people you actually get a completely different type of folklore like London is a really good example like London's legends are absolutely off the chart like some of them are so weird but then they've gone on to inspire all kinds of things like Neverwhere and the Rivers of London series and so on but I think in terms of like where you get so many stories in one place you can't really beat Dartmoor Um, I mean Devon in general has got quite a lot of cool stuff but Dartmoor is definitely I think one of the the best places to start if you're looking for a really broad range of them so it's it it's a bit like Northumberland we've got quite a wide range of of stories but like Dartmoor has got them in like a slightly different way so you've got things like bottomless pools and the devil pops up because obviously he gets around a bit and uh, you've got sort of phantom I'm sure there's a phantom carriage somewhere so you've got and you've got the 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 famous one with the hands that apparently appear and 
put uh, on people's steering wheels and force them off the road and everything. So it's a really, really fascinating area just for cramming loads of legends into one space. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I must say the the moors, I mean, you obviously like moors, you've mentioned them yeah. a couple of times. <laughs> but I think moors, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that folklore often comes with this issue of control in unpredictable times, but also unpredictable places. And the, the weather on the moors, it's like when the mist comes down, if the weather turns and you're out there, you are out of control, really. I mean, you just have to sort of stay still I guess otherwise you get lost and it can be really dangerous so I get is that what it comes down to eventually it's all about trying to control the world yeah and I think also some of the stories are really cautionary tales so they're kind of I like to think of them as being a bit like do you remember the old like public information films that you'd get that were Mm. horrific (laughs) and that stayed with you they're kind of like a version of that so like when you think of the Jenny uh, Jenny Greenteeth legend, this idea of this sort of terrifying hag living in deep water, ready to pull you away and, and drown you if you fell in. Well, what better way to get sort of people who can't swim to stay away from deep water than sit, rather than saying, oh, you might fall in and you can't swim, which people might go, nah, I'll be fine. But if you're like, ooh, there's a witch in the water who's going to like pull you down and drown you, people might remember that more. And I mean, one of the stories we've got on the Simon Side Hills um, is around these figures who are known both as the the brown men of the moors and also the Simon Side dwarves. And they are like quite murderous in a lot of ways. And in most of the stories, it basically boils down to just kind of, if you find yourself lost, just stand still and wait for it all to blow over. Because obviously, if you wander off the path, you're, you're there's, you know, there's bogs everywhere. There's like sharp drops and things off precipices. So it's kind of you do really want to be wandering around here in the dark. Probably not. Um, <laughs> so I, I do think that a lot of the stories, it's kind of almost if you didn't have the common sense to start with. Now, this is what you need to do to, to kind of keep yourself safe. And talking of wandering around in the dark, <laughs> you and I share a love of graveyards and this is going to go out around Halloween. Uh, so how do body parts and dead bodies play a part in folklore? Actually, like a lot more than you'd think, because I was sort of <laughs> I, I, I was sort of sitting going back in my head through like all the things I've covered and things I've come across. And like the first one that sprang to mind for me was actually teeth. When you think about the tooth fairy. Like, how weird is that as a concept of leaving a shed body part for someone to come and collect in exchange for money? I mean, it's it's a really strange thing to do, but yet people still do it because it seems almost harmless. I mean, at one point in the past, people, if once they lost a tooth, they would actually leave it in a mouse hole or a rat hole, hoping that the, the one that came in would then be as strong as a rat's tooth. And it, this is kind of this concept of like sympathetic magic that you can draw something to you by your actions so obviously in this case if I leave my tooth in a rat hole then the next tooth I get will be like there sort of thing so there's quite a lot of weird stuff around teeth but then obviously there's the old favorite the hand of glory and this is just wild I know when I first came across them because we've got quite a lot of legends of them up here and for anyone who's not come across them before that essentially people would cut down cut the hand off a man who'd been hanged and left on the gallows ideally in the dead of night you would then dry the hand and pickle it and then you would obviously to preserve it and then you would dip the fingers into wax to turn them into candles and then if you lit those candles and you entered someone else's house they would all be enchanted and wouldn't be able to wake up while you were in there so you would be able to basically rob the house uninterrupted 
And I think throwing milk over it would extinguish it, but water wouldn't. And the thing, the, the thing that's so cool about the Hand of Glory, it sounds like it's been made up, but somebody actually found one in a wall of a cottage in Whitby and then donated it to the Whitby Museum in 1935. So there's like, because we've actually got a physical, tangible thing, and obviously we don't know that it was ever actually used as a Hand of Glory, but because there is an object attached to the folklore, it, I think that's where they've probably captured the the imagination more than most. But I mean, you get like public executions appearing in folklore more often than I'm comfortable with because people actually thought that the whoever had been executed would actually basically be a form of medicinal cures rolled into one. So if you had a swelling, you would then rub the hanged man's hand across the swelling, believing it would go down. There was another one that people thought if they took splinters from the gallows and put them in their mouth, it would cure toothache. I mean, the complete lack of hygiene involved in that, but still, it's just, it's amazing that people thought that this, you know, instrument of death and, and torture essentially was going to somehow be good for them. And people would like snip bits off the hangman's rope to cure headaches of all things. So it's fascinating how people almost lose all respect for the dead if they're a criminal. And of course, you... it's it's not just a criminal. It's also a saint. I mean, I write a lot about religious relics yeah. and it's exactly the same. You know, I've been writing about Thomas Beckett and mm. pieces of his clothes and his skull and his blood. It, these cause miracles. And it's so interesting because what you're talking about, if you just said, well, instead of a criminal, it was a saint, someone who was killed for their faith rather than for a crime, which could be the same thing <laughs> in some <laughs> places. And it, but, but the body parts being treated exactly the same way as a way of healing and of or almost some kind of intercession with the supernatural it, it, that's cool right I mean one hand it's called religion on the other hand it's called folklore yeah and it's really funny because obviously one of them is considered acceptable and the other one really really isn't and there because there is a certain tone that people adopt when they talk about people like rubbing bits of dead person on them I mean I found one Irish charm to draw lover to you and it involved cutting a piece of skin off a corpse's arm and then uh, tying it to the person that you wanted to fall in love with you <laughs> while they were asleep. And then you had to take it off before they woke up. And then as long as you preserve the skin, that, that person would love you. And you're like, in what world is tying part of a corpse's skin going to entice someone to love you? And, and, and the people really look down on that and describe it in sort of probably quite dismissive terms like I just have. But then if you were to say, oh, but I've, I've been to this sort of saint's relic and it, it cured whatever, people would see that in a very different light. And I think it's written about in a very different tone, which in some ways goes back to what we were saying earlier about the idea of like folklore kind of being the, you know, looked down upon by the establishment. But then mm. the establishment have their own rituals, which are somehow all right. Yeah, exactly. Well, we have it in Bath. There's these ancient Roman and pagan springs, which then the church just took over and uh, built an abbey on. And <laughs> like you did, co-opting older beliefs into established religion is is completely normal. I mean, it's how we how religions are built, really. But coming back to Halloween, what is the folklore in Halloween itself, or All Hallows Eve? It's a, it's an interesting one because it depends how far back you want to go. And I know obviously a lot of people um, like to refer to it as obviously this this Celtic festival, but I think obviously Celtic as a word gets thrown around quite a lot without people necessarily engaging with the fact that the Celts were actually a series of tribes. It wasn't like a single um, kind of, um, like, um, it's an umbrella term more than anything else. 
But it, essentially, a lot of the practices come from Ireland and Scotland. And the whole idea was about welcoming home the dead that you wanted to see and deterring the ones that you didn't. So it's kind of not a celebration per se, but it's that time of year when this whole idea of the veil between the worlds being thinner so people could, um, could sort of like the dead could cross back over to, to, to visit the living again. And you do see, obviously, a I wouldn't say similar, but obviously there are parallels with with a lot of the stuff around the Day of the Dead in Mexico and, and those practices, um, except they've now been co-opted as well. And I think with Halloween, it's really interesting because it, when you look at a lot of the practices that will have like trick-or-treating, you can see that in the practice of children going door-to-door and offering to, to put on like a little play in exchange for like some sweets or, or some food or whatever, or the poor would go from door to door and offer to say prayers for the rich, which would then help their their deceased loved ones go through purgatory quicker. And they would do that in exchange for, for food. So it's funny how a lot of the things that people do is like this really fun, joyful, oh, yeah, it's Halloween kind of thing, uh, do have their, their, their roots in this festival. It's basically about welcoming back the dead for a couple of days. And I, I sort of feel like it, a lot of it is a bit of a shame because when you look at, you know, you go into the shops in sort of late September and all the plastic tats out and it's all like fake cobwebs and bats and things. And it's just, it, it's almost like being Disneyfied in a lot of ways, which is, but then again, it's also a really good excuse to do nothing but watch horror movies all month. So I'm, I'm kind of torn on it. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? So also on the art side, because you have you talk about lots of different art and artists. I was just on your Twitter feed and, and you had uh, some stuff on there as well. And so how does folklore bring a deeper side to art? And is there any any particular artists that come to mind as using folklore effectively? It's funny because I think in some ways it's like the artists illustrate an element of folklore. And that's the bit that people then remember. So, and then in a way, it almost legitimizes the folklore because it's then been preserved in like an accepted cultural medium. So, if you look at like, he's the unofficial artist of folklore Thursday, it would be someone like Arthur Rackham. And a lot of his illustrations are really, they, they deserve to be called iconic because he preserves a lot of these ideas around everything from sort of scenes from poems that are then about folklore or he he, he then has um there's a fabulous one of a, a house brownie that he's done which then informs how people then see the figures in the stories when they encounter the stories so i think art is really good for visualizing what is otherwise an oral medium and obviously in in times you know before again you had mass literacy i guess you know doing things visually is a really good way of preserving information but then, of course, if you move on to, I think the, the biggest movement who who used a lot of folklore and mythology as well, to be fair, are the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Mm. And in a lot of ways, obviously, sometimes it's just an excuse to have women with very few clothes on, particularly, <laughs> particularly where the Greek nymphs are concerned. But the, the way folklore tends to get used is it's almost as either a means to make a point. So you've got something like John William Waterhouse's work um, about... The, the poem that John Keats wrote, La Belle Dame Sans Messie. And it's all about this idea of like the fairy woman who entices the human knight. And at the end of the poem, you don't know if the knight's still um, alive or dead. And again, it's this cautionary tale of maybe don't hook up with strange women that you meet in the forest. And the way he captures it, he really captures that sort of predatory aspect of the, the fairy woman. 
And I, th- I mean, Waterhouse, again, he's another artist. When I did an episode on him, it was like, oh, how on earth do I actually like slim this down? Because he did about 100 and odd paintings and most of them are folklore and mythology related. So I was like, I'm going to have to just pick some of them because I can't possibly do all of them. But then obviously they also engage with the Arthurian legends. And then that then kind of colours how I think we see the Arthurian legends now. So we're kind of seeing folklore brought to life in a way that, everyone's then on the same page because everyone's looking at the same imagery. And if people want to engage more with folklore, is there a sort of type of curious attitude that we need or questioning almost? If you go to a place, how do you find the folklore? I think the the, the two things you do need are an open mind and a sense of discernment. So sometimes it can be a question of, well, who wrote this down and why? which is why I'm always really sceptical about anyone passing on what the Druids apparently did, because it's like, well, we only know what they did because the Romans wrote about them and the Romans were trying to wipe them out. So it could be fake news. Um, <laughs> but when you go somewhere new, I mean, I, I tend to, whenever I, I, I visit like a new town or I go to a city, I'll always try and seek out like a book of local legends. And invariably, most places have like a local publisher that does that kind of stuff. And they're just stories that have been collected and obviously they've been passed on enough that they've passed into that area's kind of canon, if that makes sense. And then it can be quite cool to actually go to the places that the books mention, see what's actually still there. Some places obviously have monuments erected to whatever the story's about. Other ones really won't because the area's changed too much and so on. But then, I mean, one of my favourite things to do is actually look on the British Newspaper Archive website. I mean, obviously... Uh, you get more of it. There's more available articles if you're a paid member, but they have just released like a million uh, articles, I think, for free. And then basically, if you actually just find like the area and just put like legends in the search box, it's amazing how many newspapers used to actually recount old new, like old legends just to fill pages, I think. Um, <laughs> but it's cool. Though, they didn't have to pay it. anyone. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, OK, so I'll, I'll just dig this old gem out. And uh, but then it's great because it's like also like in 1847, this is what people believed about this particular area. And of course, they also talk about folk traditions as well. So I did an episode about the Festival of Lamas um, at the start of August and it was amazing how many places, even into like the 1920s and 30s, were still having Lamas fairs. So it was quite cool to be able to trace how local communities were engaging with a, a tradition and it was preserved by the local newspapers. And I know a lot of people have a massive problem with mainstream media, but I do think that local news is slightly different because it, it, it it's obviously done by people in the area for the area. It's got a different agenda. So I think it when you go looking for things like folklore and what have you, it's it's almost kind of safer to read what they've come up with. And then sometimes, obviously, there's even interviews with locals as well, so you can then get the voices of these people who believe these things, again, preserved in the papers. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And we could talk about this for a long time because we are both really interested, but we're almost out of time. So this is, of course, the books and travel show. So what are some books that you recommend about folklore or the supernatural or, or whatever you think? I think because there's so many available, I think if you're looking for sort of an overview or like a way into English and British folklore in particular, D.D. Cheney's Treasury of British Folklore is a really good place to start. 
And obviously then if anything piques your interest, you can then follow the bibliography to see where, where Didi got things from. There's also the, there's uh, one on forests and one on seas that, that she also wrote with Willow Winsham and they started Folklore Thursday as well. Uh, one of the ones I always refer back to is Jacqueline Simpson and Jennifer Westwood's The Law of the Land. And it's huge. I got it for like £8 in one of those like book warehouse places in London years ago. But it's great because it's divided in area and county. So you can really look at in a really granular way, sort of local folklore, but then also see themes across the whole country. And obviously, because I know both you and I have quite dark interests in quite a lot of ways, I would recommend uh, Mark and Tracy Norman's new book, which literally only came out last month, Dark Folklore, because they're looking at obviously the darker side of things, which in my opinion is usually the most interesting stuff. Absolutely. (laughs) It totally is. (laughs) So um, where can people find you and your books and your podcast online? Everything's basically on my website, which is acsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick with only one E. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and Instagram in particular, whenever I post a picture, I'll sort of tweet snippets of folklore. So if you like bite-sized bits of lore and myth and legend and so on, um, I post those. And obviously my books are all on my website or they're available through Amazon and all the other platforms like Kobo and what have you. Um, but my podcast is probably the easiest one to find because I think I'm on all the platforms. I'm sure my, my my distributor goes to all of them and that's just fabulous folklore with AC. And it's also on YouTube as well, if you prefer watching through, like, well, listening through your telly rather than a computer. So I'm basically trying to colonise as many places as possible on the internet. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Icy. That was great. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.